You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Music lovers, thanks so much for joining us on Modern Musicology. My name is Alan. Let me introduce my co-host. We have solo artist, former Aquanetta's drummer, bird enthusiast, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And DJ and music journalist, Rob Levy. Hey, how are you? And we have a special guest joining us this week. Rob, do the honors. So we are especially happy today to have uh, John Rob on the show. Uh, John is an award-winning journalist and founder of the Louder Than War website and the Louder Than War Empire, which now includes a radio station. Um, in a career spanning over 30 years, he was the uh, first to write about bands like the Stone Roses and Nirvana. He coined the word Britpop, which is pretty big in and of itself. And he's also written uh, several books, including The Stone Roses and the Resurrection of British Pop, The 90s, What the Fuck Was All That About, <laughs> Punk Rock and Oral History, the North Will Rise Again, uh, a really great book called Manifesto, and then his latest, The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth, uh, which is out now and coming out in the U.S. on May the 16th. So we're very excited to have you here and talk about that book and uh, lots of other things. And John, I wanted to ask you if you can just talk about the idea of writing The Art of Darkness and how that came about. Well, it's about 10 years ago since I started it. I wasn't writing it every single day, but it's kind of on and off. But there was definitely a gap. There was definitely space for somebody to do a pop culture book about goth. I mean, there have been a couple of books like Mick Mercer's done these encyclopedias of goth, which are great. There's a lot of academic books about goth, but I wanted to do a book that was like what John Savage maybe done with England's Dreaming, where it's a pop culture book. You know, it's a book that you can kind of read, and if you don't like the music, to understand the music had an importance and an artfulness, but explained in a way that you could actually understand as well. Because, I mean, academic books are great for academics, but I find them often far too dry, you know, so they don't sort of ooze a love of music and the culture, and I thought that was important as well. So there are certain parts of the book that would be academic, but a lot of it was descriptive, and also I wanted people to feel like they're actually inside the culture, not just looking at it very dryly and dissecting it from the outside. There's so much information in this book. It's really insane. But I love how you <laughs> began I love how you began it with sort of the history of the Goths from 410 on, basically the the uh the, the sacking of Rome in 410. How did you come up with the idea to, you know, basically chapters two to five to five are about like real history of the Goths. How did that how was your idea formulated for that? I think uh, more than probably any other scene, goths does have a history. You know, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of music scene, a lot, a lot of music subcultures, and many of them are coalesced in the UK because we're, we're very good at joining strands of culture together, making new things out of them. That's kind of our little party trick. But golf to me, felt like it was, it was something that had gone back a long, long way. So I thought, I thought I'd play with that idea, you know, the idea that every generation trying to deal with his blues with whatever contemporary technology there is to hand. So if you were someone like Lord Byron, 
in 18, 15 or whatever, you'd be writing poetry or books or having that insanely brilliant uh, ghostwriting competition in Geneva with Mary Shelley and a couple of her other friends are coming up Dracula and Frank style. What a night out that was, wasn't it? You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you want to be at that party? I mean, uh, yeah. they're obviously on a lot of very interesting sort of uh, hallucinogenics. And, and it's, I thought the most rock and, probably the most rock and roll story in the book is Lord Byron, Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know, of course. And, you know, and, and you know, before that, maybe people have done sort of gothic or, new, or, or romantic paintings. I thought, well, I will extrapolate that and just go back to the very beginning, to the very first time somebody had ever used the word goth uh, knowingly. And as far back as I could go was the Visigoths sacking Rose, so the Visigoths and the Western Goths. And there's was, there was, they split to two in the other half of the Ostrogoths, the Eastern Goths. But they sacked Rome in, in 410. And I thought that's a pretty cool place to start a book, really, because it kind of puts context. It's, it's, it says a statement, doesn't it? It says, look, this book's going to be about the whole damn thing. You know, we're going to start with all Rome. And end of the Instagram. And obviously, the fulcrum is the post-punk scene because our generation, the way we dealt with our blues, was and our contemporary technology that was at hand was playing music in bands. You know, yeah. whereas now people will probably use social networking. So there's a lot of modern goth influencers who put pictures up on Instagram standing around the forest with no music on it at all, which is totally fine because in a way that's gone back to the 17th century paintings. They're just like using Instagram filters to create works of art. Uh, but they, they, they are goth influences, you know, as, as valid as the bands were in the time. But I mean, the, the main part of the book, because it's, you know, because it, it is about where the culture actually coalesced, is that post-punk period, you know, the sort of the darker side of the post-punk period. You mentioned that in the book that you're, you know, there's a few places where it could have started. I mean, with Johnny Lydon, with Public Image, maybe with Susie Sue, maybe with Wire. Do you have, do you have a something in your head where you think it began or you just don't I think there's a, a really simplified version where you could if you turn it to mathematical equation you could say jim morrison plus david bowie times punk equals goth that's like you know the x plus y equals you know two, two point z or something version but there's a, there's a whole stream of their influences coming in there of course there is you know well, yeah. you know, Nico, the Velvets, you know, loads and loads of stuff, you know, uh, all, all the romantic poems we were talking about a minute ago, it's, it's all in there. It's all, it's a flood of stuff coming in, coalescing in the big bang of the culture, which, it, and see, the interesting thing about this culture is it wasn't called goth originally. I mean, coming out of punk, it was alternative culture, and it was alternative music you heard in alternative clubs. That was kind of the catch-all term for it. The word goth was a retrospective term for the scene that was already there, so people already dressing in black clothes and people already had sort of uh, a more outrageous version of the punk look uh, and in small towns as well. It wasn't in London or the big cities. It was in really unlikely places. And then he got called goth as a sarcastic term. It was almost like, a, you know, taking the piss out of it really. And that's why every single band hates the term goth. You, you wouldn't say to Susie, you're a goth icon to mm -hmm. her face. She, she would not like that at all. Of course, when she started the Banshees, she was, um, making her version of the energy was around the Sex Pistols. So her first gig at the 100 Club in September 1976, when they went up and played for 20 minutes, they just jammed with Sid Vicious on drums, Mark Pepperoni on guitar, and uh, Steve Severn on bass. It's an amazing lineup, isn't it? Oh, just, 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 just in a 20-minute like, load of noise. Just, uh, it like my head just exploded. And <laughs> <laughs> Sid was a pretty good drummer. You know, he, he wasn't like a jazz drummer, but he could keep the beat, you know. So it sounded more effective than you, you saw. It, it wasn't a complete noise, basically. It kind of worked. 
And um, but she didn't do that to be a golf band. She did that because that was her interpretation of the energy that was around punk at the time. But it was her, you know. I mean, all these people are fierce individuals. They're not part of a scene, you know. None of these people you could ever get. You can't get them all into one room and say, "Hey, we're all a scene." It doesn't doesn't work like that. But we, but when we're talking and, and, and all the listeners, we understand that golf is, is a shorthand term, you know. So if you said to me, "There's a really great band," I don't know, in St. Louis, you should really listen to them. I go, "Well, what they're like? We've only got four seconds to understand what it is." You go post punk golf. I go, "Well, that's interesting. I'll check that out." It doesn't mean I'm going to imprison them in the sounds. It's just a, it's a shorthand to get to what we're talking about. So. So, so that's that's kind of weird thing when you write a book about golf because you have to explain every single chapter about every single band how they're not actually golf band brackets they probably are. <laughs> the first <laughs> they are aren't. <laughs> <laughs> you're in and you're out. But the first band to actually be called Gothic, which is a slightly slight differentiation, but it's also fits in the context of the book, was the Doors who were called a Gothic band in a review of their first gig in New York City in 1967 when. The uh, reviewers think it was John Sticky, a music writer, writing for, for some New York magazine at the time. He said they had gothic overtones. And he also described them as, uh, and I, I actually really like this description, as reflecting America's fascination with violence back at itself, which is great. And it? it's a great piece of writing because they, they really, I mean, the Doors didn't actually really go into, they did go into the heart of darkness, quite literally, musically. And of course, later on in Apocalypse Now, which uh, when they when they use the end in the soundtrack, and uh, now because I now because I'm speaking on an American podcast, this is a different context when I talk about the Doors because Doors, of course, were huge in America in the '60s. You know, they're one of the biggest bands of the late '60s, but in the UK, they were just a big cult band. So, you know, like My Fire got to number twenty, and another single got to number thirteen. The albums they, they kind of charted low reaches, but they weren't. Big here, they played they played one gig in the UK, you know, and so so a lot of people, unless they had hippie friends like I did, would never heard of the Doors. So when Apocalypse Now came out, and the end was on the soundtrack at the end, and this is about 1979. That's when most people of my generation who were into punk and post punk heard the Doors, and I think it's a re- that again, it was a retrospective connection. I think people heard the end, go, wow, that really makes sense in this time, you know. It, it, it totally fitted the mindset of, of a lot of people in my generation. I think if you lob that little uh, musical grenade into the middle of post-punk, you're almost definitely going to end up with something that's like goth, you know, because there, there was a stark darkness, a brooding darkness to it, you know, which which definitely, not that people did versions of it, but it gave people a suggestion of how you can make music that was away from the ramalama of punk, but still create something that was atmospheric, intense and dangerous. So... I mean, I mean, I mean, a few kind of massive music heads knew the Doors, of course. I mean, uh, Rob's got his Joy Division T-shirt on there, and obviously Ian Curtis knew about the Doors. You know, I, mean, I interviewed Hooky loads of times over the years, Peter Hawk, and he always tells me about there was a review they did of one of their early gigs where they got compared to the Doors, and Peter Hawk, and this is this is an example of how one known the Doors were. Peter Hawk said, "Who were they?" He didn't. He, he had to ask Ian Curtis for a record. Ian Curtis had all the records. He was a music fiend, you know. And Ian Curtis lent him a Doors record. He put it on and goes, fuck me, we do sound like the Doors. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> because of the baritone thing. And, you know, like, like Jim Morrison was, it is, is, is the art type of goth and the black leather, head to toe, the deep um, baritone voice, mad, bad and dangerous to know, like Lord Byron. And both are very intelligent, you know, a, a love of romantic poetry. You know, they said you could quote a line out of a book to him and he would know the book. And he could do. He could remember whole pages of books from New Romantic Poets, and 
you know, from Baudelaire to Lord Byron, he was steeped in that stuff. I'm always amazed he had time to read it. I mean, I mean how can you read it? I mean, he seemed to be drunk all the time. When, when can you read a whole, <laughs> like, you know, 18th century poetic tome, you know? <laughs> I wanted to ask you, too, because goth has sort of been so cannibalized in popular culture now, almost, where it's like everywhere. How did you sort of weed out what you did and didn't want to talk about without making the book, you know, a thousand pages as opposed to 600. It, it wasn't easy. I mean, that book could have easily been a million words, but yeah. I, had to, I had to create a structure really to, to um, rein it in a bit. So I do the history and I, I set the scene and, I, you know, like I was saying before, chapter two to five are about, the, you know, going from Rome and then I kind of build all the way up to like uh, post-war rock and roll. And take that journey to, to then you get to the uh, the key chapters of the post punk period, which are about each band, the key bands, and that in a way that, that when I do all the key bands and they give them one chapter each, it's meant to be like being on the dance floor of a golf club in the north of England or somewhere in that period. You know, they're the bands you would hear, but I'm just explaining their histories, and I like to weigh all their histories. They come from completely different angles. They've got completely different motivations, but somehow musically, they all matched and made sense. I mean. There's bands in there, like there's a whole chapter on the Cramps, you know, obviously an American band. And not, you know, not technically a goth band, but there wasn't a goth club or, as we do all call the time, alternative clubs. You, you would hear them five times a night. They, their aesthetic completely fitted. I don't think they even realised, that, that, you know, that, that, that what they brought into the scene uh, completely fitted with people's mindsets, you know. The thing is, like, you know, when, when you think of the Cramps now, and they, they, you think... I mean, they're an amazing band, but you, you kind of think of them as being quite kitschy and um, sort of darkly humorous. But for us in the UK, the first time I, I saw a Cramps record and you saw a picture of them on the sleeve, even before you heard them, they looked terrifying. They, they, they looked like murderers and they looked like corpses. Brian Gregory, you thought, where's his face? You, you look like in half a face. It was because you couldn't just go, go and Google it and go, oh, I see. They're, they're just, it's a bit of a laugh, really. There was no context to it. It was just like this kind of, pretty right. scary, scary looking band making this quite spooky kind of music that sounded, their music does sound uh, macabre, you know, or it did then, you know, especially the, the first album, and even the second album, which when Kid Congo comes in on, in on guitar, and they're a psych- and then you realise it's called Psychedelic Jungle, it's a clue, because they are a psychedelic band, you know, there's a, the, the Cramps, when you know the whole story, it's quite amazing, they met at uh, this really wacky college in Sacramento, that's where Lux and Ivy met, which where they did a course on the magic mushroom god. And at the end of the uh, college uh, year, the, the lecturer said, what, what do you want? Uh, what grade do you want? And they just made up their grades. <laughs> and they spent all the time there taking loads of acid. So their, their influence was, was um, hallucinogenic, but their frame of reference was backwards rockabilly, which they got really into. So it's, it's, like, a, it's like a hallucinogenic backwards rockabilly, you know, and then, it comes out in England and never embraces it in a completely different scene. And I think that's quite fascinating in a sense. But they're also a sartorial influence. I mean, Brian Gregory is one of the most amazing looking guitar players. You know, the polka dot flying V and his whole style and his hair. You didn't see many people bleached hair at that time, you know. And his bone jewellery became a bit of a thing in England for a few people. He's an influence on Dead or Alive. We talked about them before the interview. You know, Pete Burns definitely took some sartorial cues from Brian Gregory. You know, Brian Gregory's not like a rock and roll superstar, but in terms of the underground in the UK, he was definitely known for, for what he looked like and stuff. And also his guitar was just amazing. Well, he just he just played noise. He just went like that, which is ace. It's just perfect. 
So, so their journey was completely different from a lot of other journeys into this melting pot. But they all kind of cross over. They all kind of cross over in these clubs. You know, the clubs were pretty well the driving force of the culture. Yeah, you're talking about the different clubs and the different places. And I used to basically like live at Danceteria. And I know that a lot, you, you were talking in your book about there would be like safe havens for people who are into this sort of music because it is true, you know, it was hard enough to walk down the street of New York City without getting caught, catcalled anyway, just because I was a, I'm a female. But to look like I did at that time, it was just totally bizarre. So it was, a, you, you walked into the club and you did feel like you were in a safe haven. I remember we would go to London specifically to go to the Bat Cave or whatever. So did you have a place there that you felt like was your safe haven in England? Yeah, well, that's what was interesting about that is that nearly every town had a club and a safe haven mm-hmm. in it. Whereas, you know, in pre-punk, there'd been Bowie Roxy clubs, but only in cities like Manchester Pips was one. There's a couple dotted around the country. There weren't there weren't loads of them. You know, for club for music and clubs, you'd have like say northern the sort of back, late period northern soul clubs. You know, so Wigan Casino would be around to about seventy three. The Highland Rooms and Blackpool would be around till about seventy seven, seventy eight. But they, they, they were a different style of music, really. So, you know, rock music in clubs was not a dumb thing, you know. So uh, when punk came along, it was a live circuit. It was about gigs. And those bands would do 55-day tours of Britain, which seems hard to imagine now. So in that post-punk period, it kind of fractured up. And the culture kind of disseminated everywhere. So these kind of really weird towns and nothing had ever come out, like Keighley in Yorkshire or Northampton in Northamptonshire, or even where I came from, Blackpool. Everywhere had this kind of golf club or a space or a back room or a pub and it was always like a Monday night it was always the most awkward night of the week because yeah. the club you know because it had the Friday and Saturday for all, all the, the beer monsters could go and have their night out so if you wanted a golf club they were just giving you the worst night possible but of course there was 50 to 100 people in every town would go there you know no matter how crap the night was you know you know for time wise they would all go there so it's so important in the culture so I opened the book with people going to the golf club because I think to me, if I had to really set the scene. I wanted people to be parachuted right into the middle of the culture. So it was about a couple going to the golf club, walking down the street. And I remember that you could hear, because people had uh, the boots on, you could hear the boots clacking and clicking on, on, the, on the cobbles. I mean, there were cobbles. I, didn't, I, say, I know that sounds very Sherlock Holmes, but a lot of those towns <laughs> still had cobbles then, you know. <laughs> and it did rain all the time. I never did wear big coats and they wore big coats because it rained all the time and also because you hid your clothes. You, you were safer, you know, and um, when you were in the clubs, people took the coats off and they did look amazing. Just like these complete We creations. always had trench coats on so that you could walk down the street. I had a big black trench coat. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's completely it, wasn't it? Because it looked good, but also because you people, you were safer. You were hidden inside your coat in a sense, like, like a giant bat. <laughs> wrapped in your wings <laughs> I mean New York I mean it must have been amazing New York but I think I think New York would have been uh, I mean New York's dangerous for a lot of things of course but I think it would have been safer to walk around New York you would think but it kind of sometimes wasn't you know I don't oh, know no, I'm sure, I'm sure but I think in those British towns you wouldn't get shot but you would definitely get beaten up a lot you know I mean it's just uh, violence, violence in England is, is more old fashioned it's with fists not, not with uh, sort of submachine guns <laughs> yeah yeah well even in the 80s i mean it was a, it was just uh taking the train looking like that you know i i have so many friends that got you know beat up that way and just mm. you know 
that's just yeah. the way it was, I guess. Uh, oh, completely. I mean, uh, so did I in Blackpool Roads, you know, yeah. just if it's it completely random, you know, you just walk along the next minute, you'd be on the floor and go, yep. Jesus, what happened there? <laughs> I mean, I was thinking it's kind of weird because I never met, what, I mean, a golf gang who went around looking for people uh, in tracksuits to beat them up. It just doesn't right. happen in the way around. So why it's people so object to somebody's hair or something? You know, cat calls are all right. I don't mind people being funny. I mean, they're not that funny, are they? At least, at least they're trying to be funny. Yeah, they're trying mean, to different than being getting hit, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, physical violence over a pair of trousers is utterly pointless, isn't it? <laughs> One of the great things that I really liked the book is how you tied glam to the goth movement, and I really love the statement you have in the book. You know, with no without David Bowie, there's no scene, there's nothing. So I'm just kind of wondering, um, one, because we're all painfully obsessed with David Bowie here. Um, if you could just kind of talk about that aspect of the book and also the effects of David Bowie on this culture. Yeah, well, I think generationally, we most of us were glam kids, really, you know. So um, growing up in the 70s, we were too young to make music at that time. You're 12, 13, 14, you know. And in the UK, we had Top of the Pops, so every Thursday night... Which I never thought Tom Pop was a bit naff, but when you think about it, it was an incredible thing. There'd be 18 million people watching the programme. Um, so if somebody got on there, they'd actually have a massive cultural effect. So there's always that thing in America, it takes it takes a year, doesn't it, to, to conquer America, you know, for a musician, because it's, it's so big, America. You know, it's a continent. But in the UK, one appearance at Top of the Pops, I mean, you could be in the top five a week later. It could be so sudden and so quick. And if they drop their guard and let's let one of the freaks on, suddenly everything really changes. You know, you you can actually have pop culture revolutions in England or at that time quite easily because you had access to the mainstream. So, but uh, Bowie, yeah, was, I mean, all glam rock was really important. You know, it's, even you know the so-called Division Two or Division Three glam was great as well. You know, so like Sweet were amazing. You know, or you know all about Chin Chapman. Everything they wrote was great. Susie Quattro. I mean, people don't talk about Susie Quattro, do they? They always talk about the we did women. on our last podcast now <laughs> yeah but, it's like we love her she's so, i know she's so um pushed aside which i think is really yeah. annoying because maybe because she had a later career that was probably um less uh front line you know but those three singles she had three massive hits in england and and they always talk about the punk women the punk women are amazing but they always talk about these the first kind of women who were not doing it in that kind of demure um you know blonde curly hair kind of thing like Susie looked tough and like kind of um, asexual in a sense or very se- kind of sexy and asexual at the same time but she, she looked hard you know and she looked like a different kind of woman and those you know just her with the bass and she's a great bass player as well she can yes. really play and, and and she is ballsy you know and all that and then but and, and so, she, so she was great but, it, but you know people don't, so it's good you talk about it but most people don't ever talk about it here you know it's like so um but bowie was obviously the king of all this but um, i do like to add mark bowling here because i mean I know Bowie was huge in America, but Mark Boland was for, for three or four years bigger than the UK. And also, I like to point out that Mark Boland was the first, and each each phase that Boland had, Mark Boland been there six months before. And Bowie right. knew that. It's a great it's a great quote from Bowie in there, like Mark Boland had glam one point zero, and I came along and tweeted a bit, and I had glam two point zero. <laughs> right. So, so but Mark was the first one to wear makeup when he on top of the pops. And Boland, uh, I mean, uh, then Bowie turned up a few months later and did it. I think, uh, I think the difference is that uh, Bowie, and this is why he's important, it's culturally important, because he's a conceptualist and he could, he could place his music in a framework 
And he could talk about, I mean, this is where he really was important for my generation. His interviews were literally were a crash course. The rain was like the line out driving Saturday, my favourite Bowie song, was a great song. Like. And it, so he would talk about sci-fi, Ballard, uh, William Burroughs, the Velvet Underground, Iggy and the Stooges in his interviews. You know, it, you know, as soon as he made it, he saved everyone's career. He gave Lou Reed and Iggy Pop a career, didn't he? They, they were washed up to Bowie turned up. And, and all this is really important because he was introducing us to the exotica of pop culture, whereas Mark Bowen, I mean, Mark Bowen just could effortlessly, effortlessly write brilliant songs, you know, but, but he didn't have, um, he didn't do interviews that were crash courses and culture, really. And also Bowie kept changing his image, which is interesting as well, you know, so every record had a, a twist in the style and each one was completely brilliant. And he introduced stylistic ideas in as well. I mean, his, his hair for a start, you know, these sort of spiky hair that goes all over punk and into goth, you know. And so in a way, goth was um, was 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 like dark glam. It was glam without, you know, the multicolour clothes, but it just went down to like one colour. But it definitely had that aesthetic in it, you know. I mean, you could see Bauhaus did covers, didn't they? You know, uh, Bowie and Bolan. Um, you know, and, and Ian Curtis. Is, is, Ian Curtis is probably a, a mix between... Uh, Jim Morrison, David Bowie. I'm mean, very much his own version of it, but they're the two core influences. And I think Bowie's Berlin records are really important as well. You know, the sound of sound of the dark, the brooding. There's a minimalism in there. Minimalism is really important. Goff. It's about what you don't play as much as what you do play, and that's in it. And even the idea of Berlin, this kind of wow, he's moved to Berlin. That's like the darkest place in the world. You know, that's I'd be like moving to Kiev now or something. You know, because the Berlin Wall. The vibe of Russia being there, and all those things. There was a there's, there's a guy I interviewed in my book called Mark Reader, who's from Manchester, and he moved to Berlin when he was 18, and you know because he'd read about the Bowie uh, records, and he said, "I've got to live in Berlin." So in 1978, he moved to Berlin, and everyone, everyone I knew in the northwest of England um, on the punk post punk scene, you go, "We heard about this 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 lad. He's moved to Berlin." <laughs> it's a scene like, "How did you move to Berlin?" And, and what a weird place to move to. And he, he's the one who brought Joy Division into their first gig in Berlin when they played to about 50 people. And he's about 19 when he put that gig on. So he's being Curtis's friend in Manchester and he ends up in Berlin as being part of that uh, post-punk Berlin scene with people like Neubarten and Blixer Barga. I mean, Mark's a fascinating character, you know, so he actually had a foot in both, both these worlds. So he was actually Factory Records' European representative, that's what Tony Wilson made him out to. And he was just a kid living in a bedsit in Berlin. So so when he came back to Manchester, Tony would give him 40 Joy Division records to take back to Germany and see if he could get anybody to play them on the radio. And that's, that's how amateur she wow. actually was. I mean, people always now, before the war, I would go to Russia quite a lot to play gigs there, to uh, go to music conferences or whatever. And every kid in Russia is completely mad on Joy Division. Everyone you meet... And they think Joy Division were like you too. I go, they were a tiny little band. I mean, when Ian Curtis died, the biggest gig he'd ever played was to 400 people. I mean, it didn't have, they didn't have a hit record in his life. It was only after he died that everything charted, you know. So it's, they were cult bands, but I mean, every, everybody liked them, was completely affected by them. And I was thinking that with the Bowie thing, go back to the Bowie thing, that sound of those Berlin records, that dark, broody minimalism, is possibly what Ian Curtis, because he was a conceptualist in Joy Vision, he knew what sound he wanted. Uh, was trying to get Martin Hannett, and Martin Hannett was completely brilliant in them records, a genius producer. And I think that's probably what they they were doing, like a post-punk Mancunian take on the Berlin Bowie kind of records, you know, with, with Iggy as well, of course, you know. Since we're talking about the the Bowie Berlin records, that's right 
smack in the middle of 1977. I want to go back to your band, The Membranes. Talk about putting that band together and where The Membranes fit in that the musical scene at that time. <laughs> I wish we, I wish we had fitted. We, then I could, I wouldn't have to bother writing books. <laughs> we, we were just like misfits, you know. This, uh, I think a lot of people felt like misfits. I don't think anybody actually really had an idea what they were aiming for musically. I think, like a lot of people, and a lot of people in the book as well. I think uh, we were sixteen or seventeen when punk hit. You know, some of the people were slightly older, it's like eighteen, nineteen, and it had such a profound effect on people. You know, it wasn't. Whereas glam would be something you could really enjoy and it was completely amazing. It wasn't something you could join in with because it was made by people to us seem like they're from outer space or London, which is the same thing when you grow up in Blackpool. You know, <laughs> it's just like <laughs> we only went to London once, you know, it's, we went on a school trip to London. That's what that's what London was like. It was so far away in our minds and whatever. So so um, this is pre-internet as well, so you, you're very cut off and you, you're working with little scraps of information, aren't you? So you try and make a punk band, but you have no idea how to play musical instruments. And it's not like now you can look it all up on the internet. You know, we, we did genuinely play the first gig and put machine notes in a row because we thought that's how you tuned up. And of course, you're completely out of tune. We didn't know what chords were, scales were. You know, we were, we were very naive, you know. And I think a lot of these people in this kind of world in post-punk were naive. And there were people, in a sense, um, getting it wrong. But you know what? If you get it wrong, you get it right. Because when you hone that down... It becomes it could only ever be your version because as you sort of ham fistedly sort of sort of sort of grope around these musical ideas that whereas normal bands now you know normal bands who knew how to play music properly we say you can't do that well we didn't know that we were just playing to the sounded right and we thought that sounds pretty good that's right and I think all those bands had that level of naivety to them you know it was accidental experimentation in a sense so so I mean by being in a band it does give me. I often thought it gives me fairly good insight into all the bands because when I talk, I, you know, again, when I talked to Peter Hawke, he, he said that he never really learned to play properly. He's just said the only thing he could ever play was his bass lines. And he said once uh, when, when the Rolling Stones, I think when Bill Wyman left the Stones, they had a shortlist of bass players and he got phoned up and he said, do you want to come down, and, you know, as an audition on part of the shortlist? And he's going, wow, cut the stones, that'd be a cool band to be in. You know, that you know, there's a point in time it wasn't doing very much. And you know, he was a great earner. And, and then, then he goes, Oh, I can't I can't actually play their bass lines. I only know my bass lines. You know, he only he can only put Peter Hook can only play Peter Hook style. He can't do anything else. Which is very much part of my generation. When I meet young bands now, they've learned a whole catalogue of songs. They could play everything. You know, bands in the sixties could do that as well, because they would go you know, like the Beatles and Hamburg would do eight-hour sets of covers, you know, and I mean, which probably is the smartest thing to do, but that just wasn't the dumb thing in post-punk. In post-punk, it was about, whoa, let's go, get a guitar. Well, I don't know what guitar is. Just get it, plug in, hit it, let's go. And that that's how it worked. And somehow, with a lot of fumbling, you came up with the sound, you know. So mm-hmm. I think I was kind of typical of that generation. But, we, but you know, we were doing it inspired by punk, but not to be part of punk. And, um, and that's why maybe alternative was a better catch-all term for the scene because it was alternative music that all sounded completely different from all the other bands. But but don't you think that that's sort of the cornerstone of that whole musical uh, generation? You know that it, we always talk on this show about the DIY 
um, aesthetic of that time, but the rebelliousness and the uniqueness and, you know, that sort of is what sets all those bands apart from all the other musical movements before and after. Oh yeah. It'd be deliberate as well. Wouldn't it be, um, as soon as something sounded like something else, you would get rid of it, even if it was really good, you know? So, you know, there was a, there was a deliberate attempt to be as individualistic as possible, you know, as far as you could go, you know, with it. I think, uh, yeah, it was, there was definitely rebelliousness. You didn't want to, it, when, I mean, it's quite easy to say you didn't want to get a major deal because no major label was going to sign you anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the DIY aspect was super important because you were in control of it, you know, and you can make the yeah. art on your terms and you didn't need anybody else's permission. It wasn't like people were sitting around waiting for someone to uh, allow them to make a record. Do you know what? It's the same with the book. It was going to come out on a, uh, I went through three publishers and, and my vision didn't match their vision. So they, the last publisher wanted to take out all the stuff about the Romantic Poets and the Fall of Rome. You're going, we don't understand why you put that in the book. And I go, well, I explained it to them. And they still didn't really understand. And I said, you know what? I'll just pay you back the advance. I'll put it out myself. You know, and I'll take that yeah. risk. And if no one buys the book, I'll have no money for a year. But you know what? That's, that's how I operate. You know, that's, and I think that's very much part of that mindset of people that came from my world, you know, that you, you won't compromise because you you think, well, I, I think I'm probably right here, actually. It is better with all this mm-hmm. stuff. It fascinates me, and that's all I'm going to do this for. You make the music for yourself, and you kind of, and all the culture you kind of make for yourself. And you, I mean, you don't do it deliberately to know we can get it, but if that's the way it is, that's just tough, isn't it? But if people get it, then it's, it's great, isn't it? And it's on your terms and things. But I, I think there's a better term than DIY. I prefer the term DIT, which is do it together. So, I mean, in the end, there was, a, there was an international framework of people working together, like-minded people making completely different music in a sense. So, you know, when I toured America in the 80s, we would tour the bands, stay with the bands, we'd lend each other gear, we'd all help each other out. You know, it's, I think that's, it's kind of, that to me, that's, that's, that's probably a better term for DIY. sounds like it's just you on your own, which cannot often actually be you on your own, but DIT is probably a better framework to be working in. Yeah. When did you get into music? Were you a very young child? When you uh, was there a specific band that influenced you, or that you loved when you were young, real young? I, I have little scrappy memories of music in the sixties. I can remember Yellow Submarine by the Beatles, and I can remember it. Uh, there used to be this show in England with these two little puppets on these little puppet pigs called Pinky and Perky, and they used to do current puppets and speeded up voices, which which is completely balmy. So <laughs> we got everybody's going. Like that. <laughs> and of course, when you're about six, it sounds amazing. Five, actually, would <laughs> be then, because it's 1966, isn't it? So, yeah, I can remember that. And then I can remember I can remember the Rolling Stones on top of the Pops in about 1969. So you, you get these scrappy memories. I can remember, also, I remember um, uh, Cream playing the Arbor Hall, you know, their farewell gig. For some reason, that was on the telly. You know, that must have been about 69, 70. So, um, to little bits and bobs and stuff. And then, then I remember Hard Day's Night being on uh, TV. It was on every Christmas. They put the film on every Christmas for some reason every year. And I remember watching it in 71, but I had no idea it was a film that had been made seven years before. I thought that was in real time. And I remember thinking, wow. And it was, and it's, it's a great film. It's, it's a fantastic piece of pop culture. Because it's, it's, you know, it's in black and white. It's really well filmed, really made, really well made, really zippy, a lot of energy in it. And it looks like the most fun gang in the world, which he was at the time, wasn't it? You know, and it's. Um, yeah. But I, but I thought that was. I thought that was in the now. I didn't realise it, it was the past. 
But that's that thing, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's like I was saying about the Doors, you know, when people saw Apocalypse Now, they thought that track was contemporary, you know, or the Kate Bush right. number one hit last year in the UK. You know, for all 13, 14 year old kids, that track was, they, they thought that track had just been made damaged. So pop's mm-hmm. weird like that, isn't it? Because it sometimes it can sound very much of its period, but sometimes it sounds so utterly timeless. You can't fit it into any time zone at all, can you? That's what happened yeah. with Bowie and me. That's how I discovered Bowie being at Danceteria, but seeing the Ziggy Stardust stuff. And that was 10 years earlier. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't know. I know it's amazing, isn't it? It's, 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 it's just so good. It just works. When you actually think about Ziggy Stardust, it's kind of very 70s, but also not very 70s at all, is it? It just, because it is, it is from outer space, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I wanted to ask you um, about the Kurt Cobain interview you did and just sort of like, at the time, you know, that was cool, but upon hindsight, it's really, really cool, right? That's like legacy building almost. So can you just kind of talk about that experience and sort of like yeah. getting behind the Nirvana train early? Well, there's two interviews with little stories on. The first one, there was a cassette going round to the music press of the first single, Love Buzz, and nobody liked it. Everyone's going, um, Sub Pop have really blown it here. This is, you know, because everyone... I mean, Mudhoney are an amazing band, so everyone was running to Mudhoney. And people like Tad, but I go, oh, God, this is amazing. His voice is, is, is captivating. He sounded, it sounded like the oldest blues man in the world uh, trapped in a young guy's body. You know, it's, it was old and young at the same time. It had the energy of a 20-year-old and the soul of an 80-year-old. There was something amazing about the singing on it. And also, I really like Love Buzz anyway. I like the original version on it, you know, I think, you know, like the, the Dutch band that put it out, the psychedelic band from the uh, late 60s and that. So so I, I, I got an interview to do for Sounds. It was only an intro piece. So I rang him up at his mum's house, you know, and I could still remember her going, Kurt, there's somebody on the phone for you. <laughs> he had to come down and write. Wow. I hope he'd, never, he'd never done an interview before. He didn't really know what to do, you know. It's, and the phone interviews are weird, aren't they, anyway, because you just sort of talk to someone you never met and you can't see them. And, it's, and, and, the, and what do you know about them? It's not, again, there was no internet. I couldn't swat it up. I just go, so where, where do you live? And he go, Aberdeen. And I go, what's that like? And he said, it's, you know, it's a logging town and it's, it's a very conservative place. And, you know, it's not a good place to grow up on that. And so it's very sketchy, four paragraph interview, you know, interviews, like a new bound intro piece. But then um, Eight months later, no, maybe ten months later, went out to New York City when they were doing their first tour, and we went to do a cover piece on Tad and Nirvana. And as much as I petitioned to get Nirvana on the cover, uh, Sounds put Tad on the cover, and that's okay. Tad are a great band, you know. Uh, but but already that point, at that point, I could see that Nirvana was good. Well, what you used to say, they're going to be as big as Sonic Youth because that's a ceiling, wasn't it? <laughs> alternative bands didn't get bigger than Sonic Youth. That, that was. You, 50,000 sales, and that's that's really maxing out, you know. So we thought, I thought, this could be as big as Sonic Youth. And I saw them play this gig at uh, Maxwell's and Hoboken, which is actually, I remember somebody setting up a camera on a tripod tripod to film the gig. And nobody filmed gigs then. And I, I, was, I was saying to the uh, sub-pop guys who were there, wow, filming the gig, this is this is really weird. Why are you filming the gig? And they're going to just get a record of it. They're going, you know, because they're going to be really big. That's what they said. They're, they're going to be as big as Sonic Youth. Go, that's why I've always said. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they played there. There's about there's about 20 people at the gig. So if you watch the gig on, on YouTube, it looks like a really packed room, but it wasn't. 
because the room's really dark, so you could just see this row. Yes, Maxwell looks, can look packed with 20 people in it, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I played there. And <laughs> yeah. I, and, and they did this amazing set, trashed all the gear, and it's really exciting. We stayed with them in New York for four days because when I wrote for Sounds, we never really got hotels. Not like the enemy, they were always really spoiled. So you'd, you'd always have to stay with the band. But in the end, you get to know the band really well. So it wasn't like a 30 minute interview. I was sat in a room room for four days. It was us, Tad and Nirvana, sleeping in a room back to back. Wow. And we didn't, we didn't even know until we got there. When we got to New York, we're going, uh, we said to the PR, where's, where's our hotel? And they said, you haven't got one. You're staying with the band. I, I didn't have a sleeping bag. I had to sleep under my coat for four days. Oh. Kirk Cobain was curled up in a corner. He never, he never lay down on the floor. And, uh, and, and Tad snored a lot because they're big, big guys. You know, so they're really super snorers. <laughs> My photographer got hit by a bus crossing the road at right outside CBGB's. Holy Ended crap! Up, yeah, I was I was one inch behind him, but the bus completely um, whacked him. He went up the air holding his camera back in his hand, so his camera didn't smash smack on the floor. I managed to kick him, so he rolled into the gutter, so the bus didn't roll over him. And then uh, I managed I had to drag him into a onto the pavement, run into a bar. And I said, my mate just been run up. This is so New York, you'll get this one. My mate just been run over by a bus on the street. And they go, so what, man? <laughs> <laughs> so hard. hard. Yeah, so hard. Oh. They took me about three, three bars before somebody ring an ambulance. <laughs> Went to the hospital. And, and this, is, this is so America as well. So in England, of course, you go to hospital and, and no questions asked. You go in, you get looked after. In America, the, the doctor was great, actually, but he said, um, can, can your mate walk on a crutches? He goes, one and no. He's going to have to learn because there's no beds. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah. They, they, they patched his leg up. Mm-hmm. We had to get a taxi back to the flat to stay in Nirvana. So we're all back to back on the floor and he's lying there with his leg all plastered up. Uh, and, and he was there for a day in Nirvana, ringing and out and getting him cheese sandwiches. And then we got, got him on the plane. Now I had to get him on a, he had to get an extra seat in the plane, his legs sticking out to come back to the UK. <laughs> Oh my he, gosh! He got wow. great photographs. New York story. <laughs> oh, the photographs of the gig were amazing. He got some of the classic Nevada pictures and that. And I interviewed him about two years later, um, just before the meltdown. You know when when Kurt went. But I mean, so so uh, yeah, that was the atmosphere changed. Then Dave Grohl was in the band. Then so uh, I mean, Dave's great. And um, but the vibe, you could tell something not very good was about to happen. It was all the, the wheels are coming off. But my, my little epitaph to that whole story is that um, in 2019, we toured around Europe with Mark Lanigan for about six weeks. And um, and it did, this is really weird because my mate wrote Mark Lanigan's solo album for me. So he just tweeted Mark Lanigan and said, I've got 10 songs. Do you want to use them? And, and he just did it as a blag. And Mark Lanigan wrote back and said, send them to me. And he sent them. He goes, they're amazing. Let's do the album. So that became Mark Lanigan's top 10 album in Britain. So I, I said to my mate, oh, give, give me his email. I'll, just, I'll see if I can get a gig with him. So I emailed him. Lanigan comes back and goes, oh, my God. I, I Oh, my God. I don't believe it. You're one of my favorite all-time bands. I'm going, yeah, because, you know, you know, America people are always really polite because no one has said anything like that in England. So I thought he was just being polite. But every night on that tour, he watched our sound check and wouldn't even do his own sound check. So he thought we were this incredibly legendary post-punk band that come to support him. <laughs> he, said, he said, I can't believe I'm going on after you. We're going... Mark, you're like a massive legend because he's such a modest guy. You know, he thought he didn't even realize what a great singer he was. He hadn't, he didn't seem to have any idea because nobody ever does do that, you know. But 
so we were chatting to me. He would tell me stuff about um, about living with Kurt, you know, because he lived in that house with um, with the guy out of Earth, Kurt Cobain and Mark Lanigan, in the house where they descended into like drug hell. When they wore the yeah. wedding dresses, and then um, you got really into the blues stuff, didn't they? So when Nirvana did that version in the Pines on the MTV acoustic, which is my favourite Nirvana moment, I think. God, it's harrowing, isn't it? And it's amazing. Well, that was Mark Lanigan's idea to bring that song in, and they were going to do Mark and Kurt and Dylan from Earth were going to do a blues album together, weren't they? That's where that acoustic thing came from. But that Dylan turned up in Budapest when we played Budapest. So I don't know, do you know what Dylan from Earth looks like? He's like he's like Mark Lanigan times ten. So he's like Mark had this kind of very brown skin, obviously from doing a lot of drugs over the years. He was, he was clean by the time we, we told him, and you know he was. You know, he's, he didn't even drink by then. Uh, but uh, so Dylan turned up, and Dylan obviously being the one who gone the, the craziest route. And Mark, Mark talks in a voice, the deepest voice you've ever heard, like that. And then Dylan turned up. I thought, oh God, what's his voice going to be like? He's going to be even deeper. But yeah, we talk like this. It's really high. Voice. <laughs> it's like because <laughs> I've heard his records and he doesn't sing like that. And he's going, I go, I said, wow, because I love Earth. I think they're amazing. Go, quote, I love your records and that. What are you up to? He goes, I've just moved to England and I'm, I've been taking photographs of fairies in fields. And he's running to fairies in English folklore and, and he believes it's all real. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want from a rock star. Oh, I that's was, awesome. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Was, I don't want to watch somebody doing their accounts. I want to hang out with people believing fairies. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so, shifting I, gears, can you talk about Alan McGee a little bit? Yeah, I've just I've just been working on a book with McGee. Um, yeah. It's about how to how to run a record label. So it's um, it's coming out in about a month, actually. I think so. I mean, I've known McGee since um, before creation. I mean, um, he used to run this club called the uh, Living Room in London, and we'd given up on London with the membranes because all the gigs are horrible in London. It, it's like it's like they're doing you a favour by allowing you to be on their stage. You know, oh yeah, you know, the the music business they're going to come and check you out, and all this is what it's like. This is not our world, you know. We 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 stand on our own two feet. I don't need to play in a bar where well, somebody from EMI might spot me, and I'm going to play for nothing. Fuck that. So we did. It's all right. We'll never play in London again. So then McGee used to ring up, and he go, and he, he's got such a strong act, Scottish accent. Hey man, I go what? <laughs> and he go, do you want to play my club? So in the end, he made us go and play in London at the living room, and it was great, you know, because he had. He had a really good scene going on down there. So you had people like the TV personalities, which were the band, the biggest influence on Alan, you know, that 60s psychedelia across the punk thing, which which that line from TV personalities to Oasis, you can see it, you know, it's the same marriage between 60s pop art and, and 70s punk, you know. So, I mean, Oasis are just basically a multi-million selling version of the Beatles crossing the Sex Pistols and TVPs, you know, they're more like, you know, the bands like The Creation, literally, um, you know, and punk rock as well. So that that was always his fascination. So we played his club a few times and he put our record out. We didn't really fall out of them, actually. We, we we put the album out and we did a gig in London. We had to draw lots. It was, we were headlining, but they decided we'd have to draw lots over the headliner was. And somehow we lost and everybody who come to see us missed us and it all went off and then we had a massive Aww. row. And we didn't speak to Ireland for about two years, but... Then I bumped into him at Reading Festival, and then we just became really good friends again. I mean, we're, we're really good buddies you know, now. That was, I mean, we're all mad then. We're all just completely mad people. Of course, we're going to fall out at some point. And also, we're really stubborn people as well. You know, and I used to go around with him in London before that, and um, when he's putting creation together. So he, well, I'd go with him to all the labels as he's talking to them. 
working out how to run record labels and stuff like that, you know, and it's, um, he was the only person I knew who could do business properly. I thought that was always quite interesting. So if you played a gig for Alan and he'd, he'd take the money on the door of the living room and he would pay you properly, whereas most people would always, not not on purpose, but they would just drop the money on the floor because they were a bit drunk or a bit untogether, you know, whereas, whereas McGee was like on the case. He, he put the money to pay the band in one pocket and the money from the venue in another pocket, which was quite organised for the DIY period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. <laughs> That's a great filing well, most, system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah most, most people just used to put all the money in the plastic bag, which had a hole in the bottom, and you'd drop out the hole, and they wonder why it all gone. It was, it was so sketchy, the whole scene, you know, because it wasn't music business, it was just a lot of mad kids t- just trying to play music and get by, you know. It was, uh, I mean, if, if you could have done it all without money and lived and not starved to death, it would have been done without money. Money was like an inconvenience. <laughs> So I know you talked a little bit about the legacy of goth with the book. Um, since you coined the term Britpop, uh, can you kind of talk about the legacy of Britpop a little bit? Because it's, it's coming back like everything else. Yeah, it's, it's funny in England because people were for a long time really sniffy about Britpop. You know, they sort of look down on it, especially music writers and things. But when you actually do look back on it, it was a, it was a great period. It's like loads of really good bands in the charts. I mean, I don't, I don't really have a problem. I don't. I mean, just because I've always been stuck in a cult band doesn't mean I want everyone else to be in a cult band. I think it's great when, you know, uh, you know, like the 60s, when the, really was the best band in the world, was the biggest band in the world. Well, you know, the Beatles are the greatest art rock band in the 60s, and, and they're, they're number one, you know. And they owned the decade, but we did the same in the 70s. You know, why? You know, I don't know what, what happened after that. Why do all the best bands end up having to be stuck in bars by 100 people, which became the model... After punk, maybe that's because of punk. It made everything so underground. You know, it was. I don't be. I don't think being underground is, is a badge of honor. It's just something you're stuck with. You know, and it's. Um, I don't begrudge any band making it. You know, because I because I know it's it's tough when you're a musician. It's not easy. You know, and I think your listeners who are musicians will understand this totally. You know, why 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 should you have to like save up for three months to get your bass strings or whatever? You know, no, nobody makes art just to play to their mates, do they? And so it's, a, it's great when you get these high watermarks when punk was like that. There's a tear in the fabric all the freaks got through and Britpop was a bit like that as well. I mean, some of the bands that made it in Britpop were around in the punk days, weren't they? I mean, Pulp. I mean, Pulp was started in 1979. I remember Pulp. They supported us a couple of times. We played with them in some, I think we played them in their hometown. And it was like, oh God, not Pulp. No one goes to see them. Because <laughs> you always need a support band to bring a handful of people in to make the gig work, and like, uh, so they never had any fans. They didn't even have friends. You go, do you not have any friends to support the guest list? <laughs> wow, that's They're hard. Most... To, I mean, that's uh, hard <laughs> oh, to well, believe. No one help. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was insane when they made yeah. it. It was like, wow. yeah. There's a bit in between when when Jarvis had moved to London. I did interview match in that period, and he'd just gone to art school in London, and he's kind of think about do I stop the band or just give it one more go and then then the PR uh, uh, Savage and Best got on them and they did a great job on them and they, they sort of set, they sort of turned Jarvis into a pop star an unlikely pop star and you start seeing pictures of him sort of popping up looking really cool you know like looking like uh, Michael Caine or something you know instead of this kind of eccentric character from Sheffield and then I remember sitting in a car of this A&R guy called uh, John Bryce and he just got the new demo uh, they'd done, and he put it on, and we go, "Oh God, these are these are pop songs." They'd always been pop, but they kind of just it's just that extra ten percent they managed to move it, 
so they had that little bit, was it babies and stuff like that, where they were just in between, they started to turn to a bit of a cult band. Mm-hmm. And then bang, Britpop came along and they became the third biggest band in Britpop, selling yeah. a million records. And you know, you know, the weirdest thing about it was, it was how natural it seemed when they got big. It, didn't, it seemed completely see, it seemed completely normal. You know, like when Adam Ant got really big, see, that was weird as well. You know, when um, and I, it's, it's in the golf book as well, the chapter, because in the early days of the Ants, they're the weirdest band in the country, the, the weirdest, weirdest band you could possibly be into. They're really intense. The gigs were quite violent. They were followed by this crew of people who dressed in amazing, freaky clothes who would basically beat each other up at the front. It was, it was, it was, you know, Britain's very claustrophobic and, vi- claustrophobic and violent, and the Ants seem to have that. And all their songs about S&M, sex, and, and darkness, dark, really dark shit. And then suddenly they put this new album out and they get they're just number one for about 15 weeks and they get this teeny bop audience. I mean, but I mean, Adam was a natural, wasn't he? Because he, he had a really good pop voice and, and he had a beautiful face. So he really was a great teen idol. But in those early periods, you, you think, not, who's going to get into this? I mean, it just really was uh, exotic underground weirdness. So that, and in a sense, that was a post-punk version of punk, really. But punk didn't have all the... Uh, Paul was just a band that no one liked, whereas Adam Ant was a band that people were actually genuinely quite scared of because it was so weird. And suddenly he's like a matinee idol. <laughs> yeah, or just it's really the evolution of a band, right? And just they were this and then they gradually, you know, or maybe it was more of a tipping point with, with Jarvis. It was a least, tipping point. But, yeah, both yeah. were tipping points. I mean, Adam yeah. was, um, you know, he put out, um, was it Dog Eat Dogs, the first single of King's Wild Frontier. And I remember somebody brought it up to Blackpool before he came out to play it. And they played in this little club night that we used to put on. And we thought, we heard that the man had gone commercial. So they put it on and, and they played that track. It's like, wow, this is even weirder than Dirk. You know, the album. It's like mad tribal drums, loads of feedback, and somebody going on about being uh, Native American warriors. And thought, I thought it was an amazing track. But I thought, this must be the B side. This can't be, this, this, <laughs> this is not like the sellout single. This is like <laughs> a completely berserk piece of wild music. And it's, to this day, I totally love that record. Yeah. 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 Can can I uh, ask you what sort of inspired you? I mean, maybe it was just the whole DIY or like you said, the DIT thing of how you started Louder Than War, uh, like the website and the magazine. And and then when you did that, I mean, did you have a vision for it to become, you know, launching out into a label, into the internet radio? I mean, did, was that all in your head or did you just start it as a sort of a basic website thing first? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean... It wasn't, I mean, I didn't think it's going to be all these different things, but I think what you have to realise now is, I think, creatively, you're not just one thing, are you? You know, it's, it's that word everyone hates, but a brand in it. So you kind of represent uh, a vision of the world, but you can adopt that vision to lots of different things, can't you? So whether it's writing music, writing books, doing the website, doing stuff on the telly like I do, whatever, it's, it's bringing in an energy and a vision that's uniquely yours, that people for some bizarre reason, buy into. So they kind of listen to what you say. So why don't you, you know, the website would be part of that in a sense and as a platform to bring everybody with you as well. Because that, again, that's that's another tenant of the DIT thing, really, isn't it? Because if you can get your foot through the door, you bring everything you can, all the other people sort of stuck behind you, trying to get them through as well, you know. Because people have done that for me, you know, like, like McGee looks after me and I look after other people, you know. It's a, it's the it's an unsaid said like it's our little union, isn't it? In a sense, isn't it? Like musicians all looking after each other. So, so when I start the websites, because I've I've been in music right before. I used to write for sounds, like you know, for ages. 
I then managed to make it for a bit. And then, it, then when the internet started, I was, I was on the internet really early. In fact, I was the first person I knew had an email. And it took about six of us to set the email up because no one knew how you set up email accounts. It was a right. CompuServe account with a massive long number on it, which I could never remember. But I had no one to email because no one else had an email. <laughs> it took about three months before I found someone had an email. And I remember looking up and someone said, you know what, this, if you go on, online and no one knew online then, there's websites. What do you mean websites? And right, I remember all... not knowing what a website was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was so weird. And we found a Tom Waits website. I mean, of all the weirdest people to have a website before anybody was actually on the internet, there was Tom Waits or something like Tom Waits. And it was like, wow, what's, what's he doing on here? I can't, he can't. He, he's not set this up, has he? You know. I remember my my another mate of mine, the fat person I knew who had the email that I could email. Uh, very savvy, actually, because he went to all the record waves in London. He learned how to make websites really, really early on. And he went around all the labels in London and charged them 20 grand each to set up websites for them. Wow. <laughs> wow. Smart thinking. I was smart thinking. And it was, he showed me how to do it. It was really easy. It was easier doing a website then than it is now because it was done with coding. So all you had to do was copy the coding off of the websites and tweak it into your website. Yes. So you, yeah. if you took, you took one letter out, it changed the color, or you put another letter and it changed the shape of it. And it, it took me about took me about four hours to work out how to do it after he told me. And I, I, I made a website super early as well. It was uh, whereas now you, you have to do it within like WordPress, and that's what mine is, the WordPress. But it's, it's it's very rigid. You can hardly change it, but then you can just keep changing around and moving around. And do you remember like when every website had a counter on it, which is on the front, so people see yes. how many people have got been on your website? Yeah, the ticker mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know it's it, it's weird now eh? because it's like. What seemed like futuristic uh, then now it seems like dusty old antiques. It's like we could yeah. now sit here in this conversation talk about websites like the grandfather clocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is true. That's so true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember thinking in the, in the early days of email, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if you had a like an email account which had your picture on it so you email people they can remember who you were and, you know, maybe put some of the things you're into on it and stuff like that. So basically, and you and put it on the web, this web thing, you know, which is just coming in, blah, 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 which is basically what Facebook was. You know, I remember we were talking about this, but we never got around to setting it up. Mm. (laughs) If only we had, it would have been us, not not Zuckerberg. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been an altruistic Facebook. (laughs) Well, I love the fact that, you know, the, the whole concept of Louder Than Water is so inclusive in a way. I mean, you cover so many different kinds of music. You cover... Uh, you know, you have different talents from young to old working with you and you just, you have no fear of the internet and you just kind of do this giant open to everyone kind of thing. And I just, it's so inspiring kind of in times, in these times, because, you know, a lot of people are just shutting people down and shutting things out. So how do oh, you yeah, kind of manage so- to keep staying so open to everything? Because I hate that black and white thing. I hate, I hate that thing where people... Uh, don't listen to other people as well. And my, and, mm-hmm. But you have to embrace it. It's almost like that Buddhist uh, meditation mm-hmm. on death. And, you know, uh, it's all right meditating on, on a sunny day and think about the sunshine and the birds. But you, but the meditation on death, which is what I've been to India, I've been to Varanasi and I've seen them do it. You know, when the, the, you know, the holy men have cut themselves in the ashes of, of the bodies. You see the bodies burning on the beaches. I've been there and I've seen it. It's quite, it's quite amazing, you know. And, and they sit there and they chant and they look at the bodies burning and, and this is something I talk about quite a lot. He talks about the golf book, actually. You know, that saying that they who cannot embrace death cannot enjoy life. You know, 
And that idea, you know, you have to even embrace the people you don't agree with at anything at all, you know. Some, you have to try and find the humanity. It's not easy, you know. Mm. There's plenty of people in this world you think, oh, just shut up. No, no, let's try and find the humanity. And it's a bit easier with music, isn't it, because we're all joining the same side. I mean, there are some musicians you just think, oh, God, just please don't do any more interviews. Just do your music, Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> but you still have to embrace the humanity, don't you? So, uh, yeah. So, but I, I, so I say to the writers, you just write about what you want. It's a portal. It's a music fan's place, you know. And um, I mean, there are there are certain types of music I feel very strongly about, and I totally love. And other types of music I don't get at all. But I want, I, I like the writers to explain to me why it's really good, you know. And you know, and, and that could go for stuff that's really mainstream as well. You know, it's you know Ed Sheeran isn't for us, but you know, I, I would definitely be interested in a piece on Ed Sheeran explains what, what worked about his music for somebody, you know, and it's. Why does he work for 15-year-olds, you know, taking really yeah. seriously and think he's amazing? I, I find that fascinating in a pop-cultural way. It would never yeah. make me want to mm-hmm. go and listen to him, but I'm interested why people are interested as well and think, and that's what my website is. And I think the only way you could change the world and make the world better is to fill it with positive ideas as well. You know, it's, uh, I think it's too easy now to think, you know, because as you get older, you just think people always said this, but oh, the, the mm. world's never been as bad. It's, these are the worst times ever. People said yeah. that in the 70s and they say it now yeah. and it's, there's a lot of problems in the world, but we're not going to solve them by sitting around a circle going how bad the world is. Why don't we just come up with better ideas? And that's what we're doing. And we're applying this to another lot of stuff that I'm doing, sort of mm-hmm. on the side of all this is a lot of eco-political stuff. So I'm working with a lot of people. I mean, my friend, I mean, the manifesto book you mentioned before is Dale Vinci's autobiography. He's a green energy pioneer in the UK. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. He was a traveler living on a bus for 15 years built one windmill, then another, now he's a billionaire. You know, it's incredible what he's yeah. done with his life. Yeah. Uh, so Dale's brilliant. He invents stuff. He's inventing zero-carbon airplanes. He's going to launch the airline later this year. So I, I can't invent stuff like that. I mean, the great thing about Dale is he's, he's got no qualifications. He just goes and does it. Mm. But, like, very similar to what we did with music. We didn't go to music colleges. We, you know, we just got guitars and got on with it and worked it out, and that's what he does. But he, he does important stuff. But what I do is, because I know everybody, I just hook them up with people. So I introduce them to like, the mayor of Manchester. And now they're working on getting a zero carbon model for the whole city of Manchester. So the city of Manchester actually becomes zero That's carbon. And, yeah, it's, you know, you just, because I know both parties, I can join them up. and be, That's why I do behind the scenes. It's positive ideas to change the world. Instead of going, oh, God, we're all fucked. No, no, let's, let's, let's actually try and do something about this, you know. But aren't you doing something to? You're doing the Green Britain Academy. Is that? Are, are you a founder of that? Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, it's my idea. So the idea was uh, to train people from green jobs. You know, so uh, if we're going to have a green uh, economy, people going to have to understand how to do green jobs. You know, and what we found, uh, the, the education sector is not that great. You know, it's 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 very rigid because we've we've had a Tory government for years and years, and they just want to teach. Um, you know, they're more interested in teaching kids how great the British Empire was and it's their history lesson. It's like, well, no, we don't really need to do that bit. Can we, can we just go forwards, you know? <laughs> we, mm. we, wouldn't it be great if, if the UK was the world's leading uh, green economy, you know, which we're not going to be because we've got a transient government that won't budge. But behind the scenes, we can get things going. So this is a train... Because what I was thinking, like, all the smart kids, loads of smart kids in this country live in council states and can't, because of accidents of birth, they can't get out. And all the, all the spoiled kids end up running the country, you know. So people like Boris Johnson, he's really spoiled, you know, he's got a rich father. They go to the, the right schools, they get their degrees bought for them, paid for, get better grades than they should have got. 
and then they're ruining everything because they haven't got a clue what they're doing. And like, so I think about this the whole this 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 is capitalism can't even run itself. You know, it's like capitalists can't run capitalism. So we thought, well, why don't why don't try and get to these smart kids, but train them up in green economy, you know, and but um, proper wages as well. It's not. And also, because we're not an apprenticeship-based uh, culture in the UK, whereas Germany, everyone does apprenticeships. And in, in this country, people look down on electricians and plumbers like they're um, like it's a lower job than being, um, I don't know, a university lecturer or something. But they're all important. Every job is as important as every other job. We're all cogs in the machine. And I don't really see why 1% should get everything and everyone else should get nothing, which is which has been ru- really rubbed in our faces yesterday with the coronation, which... I know you all love it in America, but <laughs> no, not it's not everybody. the only thing that goes. <laughs> I have mixed feelings, but yeah, yeah, I totally know it's it, it costs no, the taxpayers however much money, and it's you know it's a it's yeah. a billionaire. Yeah, King Charles is a billionaire, and we're all clapping, and, and he's going on about doing his duty. You go, well, what do you actually do? I mean, yeah. Please tell me what you do. I have no yeah. idea what you do at yeah. all. You go, well, they open lots of supermarkets. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of great things that we do in this country, but we just do behind the scenes, you know. So I don't get annoyed about the coronation. I just get on with stuff, you know, and I think it's – this yeah. is it. This is the, the, the positive energy thing, you know. It's uh, Instead of getting bogged down on the internet all day going, oh, God, Momo, coronation this, coronation that – I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to join that person to that person, nudge that person over here, try and get something going on over there. So that's, I think that's, that's everyone's got a little role in making these changes, haven't they? And that's, that's kind of my role in it. Dale's role is, is, is brilliant in inventing stuff. And he's, he's actually become a, a very big media figure here as well. Very good at going on right-wing TV channels, explaining uh, eco-ideas to, to people like Nigel Farage. He's on, he's on Nigel Farage the week, and Farage is... Obviously thinking, who's this scruffy guy? Because Dale goes and tells you, as Dale, so you dress like a travel black nail varnish on. They're looking at him thinking, who's this weird guy? And then he just listens to them go, yep, 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 you know, we never have electric cars, you never have this. Then they run out of steam, and then he very calmly explains within 30 seconds why it worked and why all your, why all your viewers, the viewers of this program is on, it wouldn't be that difficult to embrace the ideas. And you can see them going, oh, my God, yeah. he's actually right. Because That's fantastic. You can't argue with a guy who's actually doing it. You know, it's not, it's not like he's making it all up. He actually is. In fact, he's got his zero carbon plane. He's going to fly it this year. You know, it's, it's not like, it's not science fiction. He's actually doing it. He's, yeah. made, he's been making diamonds out of there. That's his thing he's been doing, sky diamonds, where, where he's, he, they soak, they suck the air down these big tubes, compress the carbon and make diamonds out of it mm. and clean the air and pump it all out again. So it's, there's so many little, and, and Green Academy, so that, that thing I came up with, so Dale's been helping me out with that. So he's sort of sitting behind, put a little bit of money in there so we can get the thing off the ground and make it all happen and stuff like that. So it's, we're into ideas, positive ideas. You know, so they, they change the world. Yeah. So That's great. awesome. I mean, it's actually bringing the, the punk rock DIY thing to play in, a, in, in political terms as well. You know, it, yeah. it does work, doesn't it? It's, it's all about punk rock empower me and then, and then not waiting for permission, not, you know, like a good idea is a good idea. You're going to make it happen. You know, it can happen as well. And the same thing, I mean, there's loads of great people do this stuff in America as well, you know, and it's, I mean, when I look at America, you know, in the, the dog days of Donald Trump, I'm thinking, well, that's not America. That's just the America we get to hear about. You know, there's, there's loads of amazing people in America doing amazing stuff. I don't see why the whole of America was reducted down to this kind of oafish bloke, you know, or, 
you know, all the the culture wars that people going about. They, 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 there's no such thing. You know, they just they just get the fifty loudmouths to dictate the agenda. But most people are like that. You know, even people even people vote Republican would not be um, averse to ideas, good ideas. You know, it's they're, they're not the enemy. We're not their enemy. You know, we're we're all got to share this space together. And I'm really bored of listening to the loudest voices shouting all the time. So that's yeah. kind of so that's kind of what the website's sort of about as well. You know, quiet voices mm-hmm. can can have as big an impact as loud voices as well. Nice. So, uh, Art of Darkness is coming out in America on May 16th. Uh, can you tell folks where they can buy it and also where they can find you online? Because you've got so many things going on. <laughs> well, you can find my website live and warm. I'm, I'm on all over the socials. If you just Google my name, you should turn it up. Uh, the book will be, it's coming out, it's, it's, in, it's, it's in Barnes and & Noble and all them kind of outlets. And um, on, on Amazon, I mean, in the UK, it's great because we could put it on band camps. You could actually get, directly get signed copies from me, but it's a bit more difficult in America because I don't live in America. Because I, 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 I think you should always try and buy stuff from independent shops if you can, you know, because that's our world, isn't it? These, these are our buddies, you know. Well, I'm I'm sure if you're in Atlanta, they're probably. Well, it might be in the independent bookshop Atlanta, but you know, it's sometimes it's difficult to get hold of things, so you have to go to those big corporations who don't pay tax. (laughs) 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 But 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 it's the only way to get it out there, isn't it? So we're all in the matrix, aren't we? In in a sense. (laughs) But then I'll be over in America in October and going to do a book tour. So we're just setting up now. It's LA, San Francisco. Just just sorting it out, and then New York at the beginning of the tour as well. So uh, I'm not, I can't I can't tour the whole of America. I've, I've actually toured the whole of America a few times. I've done the mad helter skelter drives, you know, where you do five days from one side to the other with a gig every single night. So you basically you drive all the way to St. Louis. So we mentioned that because that's your town. You play the gig, sit down, have a cup of tea, get back in the van, drive four hours, go to a hotel, motel for four hours, get up again. Drive another ten hours and go do the next gig. <laughs> I did that too. <laughs> yeah, it's ace, isn't it? Though it's really <laughs> exciting, isn't it? Because because if you're British and you, and you, about a third of America is just this mad desert full of cactuses, and for people like me who grew up watching, you know, like your little kids, you watch westerns, don't you? Think, wow, it actually does look like this. Oh yeah, like, uh, I was blown was, away too. Being from the East Coast, just going to the yeah. West Coast and just driving oh, through like that too, it's oh. crazy. It's so amazing, and it's so uh, desolate. I remember we stayed in one motel one night, and we got up the next day, and we said to the person behind the counter, Where, is, where's the shop around here? And they said, about 50 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> the motel was was 50 miles from the next building, or a yeah. garage with no attendance, because there's no one lives around there. You know, you think, wow, you could disappear in this desert. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well... John, thank you so, so much for spending a little time with us and talking about your career and your upcoming book. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. It has. No, yeah. thanks. Thanks for your time, folks. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So we will maybe, we'd love to have you back at some point. You know? Oh, yeah, 100%. Listen. Yeah. There's always stuff to talk about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so once again, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And um, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your evening. Oh, yes. And your day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Take care, John. We really appreciate your time. Okay. Take care. So fun. Bye. 
Good afternoon. May we be of assistance, sir? Yes, I'm looking for a podcast for someone who likes that 1960s headache music. Don't these podcasters have atrocious taste? Sir, may I recommend this podcast by Monkeying Around? I guarantee a migraine. I never heard of Monkeying Around. You never heard of Monkeying Around? He's, He's never, never heard, heard of, of Monkeying monkey around. around. What does Monkeying Around sound like? <laughs> Ooh, I'll take it. He took it? He took it. Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys. Yay! That was great. He was so yeah. awesome, Rob. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's so conversational yeah. and God and so knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah. That was that was really, really, really amazing. Yeah. <sighs> that was so. I loved his whole philosophy. Yes. Well, he's got. He's, he's doing like so much stuff. It's just yeah. like people ask me like, "You're always busy," and I'm like, "Look at this guy." Yeah, that dude was really busy. All right, so we are going to be jumping into our picks of the week in just a minute. But before we do that, we have some listener feedback that we want to share. So, Steph, take that away. Well, we just we got some great feedback on the uh, Sparks episode. And a wonderful comment from Bill Bruce, who goes by Different Voice on Instagram. Bill said, my jaw just dropped here. Seriously, guys, do you have a spy cam on my re record collection and gig <laughs> ticket stubs? <laughs> the Mail Brothers have been in my life since I first saw, heard them on Top of the Pops in 1974, and then seeing them live a year later, the first of umpteen times, including their fantastic collaboration with fellow Scots Franz Ferdinand in the guise of FFS. I will listen to this EP later this evening. Shall I try to guess? Oh, I'll listen to this episode, he means. Shall yeah. I try and guess who you're going to feature in the next episode? Because we 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 think we're psychic with you, Bill. We must be. So maybe you can try to guess who we, we might interview next. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and, and make a guess. Because if it's not right, it'll at least give us an idea of yeah. what we should be doing coming up. So, by all exactly. means. By all means. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. That was really awesome to hear from you. All right. Let's do picks of the week. What's been in our ears and in our eyes this week? Rob, why don't you lead it off? Okay. So um, it's been an interesting month for anniversaries. Um, so I'm going to start with Power, Corruption, and Lies by New Order. It just turned 40. Um, many consider the first sort of proper modern New Order album, but you know, Age of Consent, Your Silent Face, The Prisoner, all kinds of really great stuff on there. Uh, Peter Hook really sort of sets himself up on, on his playing. And the percussion by Stephen Morris on that record is fantastic. He's a beast. Uh, so recommend that. Uh, another record that had an anniversary this, this month was um, 20th anniversary. I can't even believe this is the 20th anniversary. But uh, Regina Spector's debut album, Soviet Kitsch, has turned 20. That's um, awesome. And it's 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 still a fantastic record. She's a terrific performer. Um, she's in that documentary that's out now called Meet Me in the Bathroom. You can hear a little bit about how the Strokes championed her and sort of got her going. And uh, we talked about openers earlier, but she was an opener that didn't fit opening for the Strokes. And the Strokes are like, she's our opener, like it or not. You know, so mm -hmm. still a great record and love that a lot. Uh, Glenn Matlock uh, from the Sex Pistols has a solo record uh, called Consequences Coming. He's got Earl Slick on it and uh, Clem Burke on it as well. It is surprisingly amazing. Um, so I recommend that as well. And uh, the Earl Slick stuff on there just is, is fantastic. He really makes the record. Also, um, we lost Gordon Lightfoot. 
And I grew up hearing Gordon Lightfoot records sort of by osmosis from my sisters in real time. And uh, then later, by listening to uh, AM radio, kids ask your parents, uh, he was everywhere. So I'm going to give a shout out to uh, to that and go with um, a record called Gord's Gold from 1974. Mm-hmm. The record has got Sundown on it. Probably in terms of albums, it is the most complete album sort of that uh, that I've listened to song by song that's got some structure and focus and just a phenomenal songwriter. Even if you don't like his voice or want to listen to his records, just read his lyrics. I mean, lyrically, he's he's just astounding, right? Um, and um, yeah, so Gordon Lightfoot Kids, seriously. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Steph, what you been doing this mm-hmm. week? Well, I got two picks. I got one, which is Peter Gabriel's new drop single yes oh my gosh four it's called four kinds of horses and it's the bright side mix um i i'm i love it it's not i i don't think it topped the previous two that i've heard from him but i still love it like his voice sounds great um it's just i just think it's a really good beautiful sounding production um, mm-hmm. But I don't, it's not my absolute favorite. It's really funny. Whenever I don't love a Peter, Peter Gabriel singer, single, sorry, I can barely talk anymore after that conversation we had. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's funny because Anthony will be the polar opposite of me. So he absolutely loves this <laughs> single, right? Yeah. So we can judge, yeah. we can judge it like, like a weighted scale. But um, so that, that's been on my, on my um, phone listening outside while I'm bird watching. And also a new video and single by Reckless Collusion, which are my pals from Australia. Uh, that's they're sort of like a prog rock kind of uh, with a little bit of ambient kind of dancey mix sound in there. They've got a new single called Dissolve that they just put out on YouTube. It's so great. It's the the video is also wicked cool. The footage they got for it is fantastic, and it's just. I, I just think everyone should go check them out. Reckless Collusion. Um, and they have about eight other videos up on YouTube to, as well that you can check out. So, Yeah, two. I really, really enjoyed the track that you yeah. shared with us. That new one, I, I think it's fantastic. Okay. I, That's great. So for me, oh my God, I've got so much stuff to talk about, um, which I'm not going to do because, <laughs> um, so I missed the last two shows two weeks ago it was because i was making my very first ever visit to the rock and roll hall of fame museum holy cow what an incredible experience that was um rob is going to be visiting in july so i think we're just going to do an episode about that um once we once he's been there to see it and then last week i was at the taylor swift concert now, Taylor is, is not necessarily my cuppa, but I do like some of her stuff, you know, and I know enough about her and the culture surrounding her that I, I found it a really enjoyable show. Um, I've already done a little review show about that. It came out as a bonus episode uh, a few days ago. So go and listen to that. So the thing that I want to actually talk about is a new, uh, not a new, but it's a, a documentary that I just watched a couple of days ago about Ben Fong Torres, who is one of the foundational writers for Rolling Stone magazine. And 
his is a name that I've been familiar with for a while, and I'm currently reading Jan Winner's biography. And, you know, obviously Ben's name comes up a lot as being one of those writers that was there almost at the ground floor of Rolling Stone and was so hugely important in the development of that magazine. So I came across this documentary and I thought, oh, I've got to watch that. And I learned so much about his, I mean, his stories of the rock people that he got to know and he interviewed and the fact that there were people on that scene, particularly in San Francisco, who Rolling Stone would call him up and say, hey, we'd like to do an interview. And they say, is Ben writing it? Otherwise, we're not interested. He that was the kind of reputation he had. But I learned so much about his parents' immigration to America and how where the name Torres came from, because it was sort of a cover for coming from China to America and um, the, the their experience living in Chinatown and his brother was killed by a street gang. I mean, it was, it's an amazing, amazing documentary. So I highly recommend that to anybody. Just go and find it. it you learn a lot about the foundation of Rolling Stone. You learn a lot about the, the music uh, scene in the 60s and the 70s. But there's all this other cultural history that's uh, told in this. And it's wonderful. Cool. So, Yeah. All right, we will be back next week, and we will be talking about, and this is a big one, this is, what, almost 50 years of, of history. We're going to be talking about the music of Saturday Night Live, and I am very excited about that, because that is one of my favorite topics. So, join us next week when we talk about SNL. Stephanie, have a great week. Rob, we'll see you next time. And everybody listening, take care, and we will see you soon. Keep rocking on. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.